Amen. You can have a seat. How's everybody doing? It's great to be here with you today. You all look better than you have ever looked before. I'm telling you, an hour makes a difference. I can see it from up here. It's amazing. It's good to have you with us here today. I'm Dan Burmeister. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you could be a part of our family today. Uh, I am excited to have the opportunity today to dive into this series in Exodus. We're in a series called Unchained. We're looking at what God is doing through this book of Exodus. And today is a passage that is just crucial, crucial to our walk with God. So I'm going to pray before we start, if you don't mind. God, we, we just, uh, we know you're here today. And we want to know you in a deeper way so that we can trust you in a deeper way so that we'll walk with you in a deeper way today. So we invite you and your spirit, we know you're here, to be active in the painful places that we hit in our lives and to meet us right there. In your name, amen. Okay, well this right here is a map of the Black Forest Trail. The Black Forest Trail, you can see the actual trail there highlighted in red. It's a 42-mile loop trail in Pennsylvania's Tyodotton State Forest. And in the summer of 1982, a father and two sons, one who was 15, the other one was 12, set out on an adventure together. They had virtually no hiking experience of this nature, though it did not deter them. The three had not really prepared much for this trip. I mean, the map looked pretty flat, simple, direct. They knew that all the paths were marked with colored dots along the way, so they parked their car outside the entrance, and they put together their backpacks full of like inadequate supplies, and they went forward in this adventure. What could possibly go wrong? Well, here's the elevation of the Black Forest Trail, and the three like quickly discovered the first day that the terrain was much hillier, much more dense than what showed on the map. That fact and the weight of their very full backpacks meant that they weren't going to get very far that first day. They barely managed to get their tent up that first day. Late in day two and starting to feel the effects of their bodies, they ran into some trouble. They could not find a good place on the trail to actually set up their tent, so they kept hiking and hiking, and it got darker and darker. Finally, they found a level space, and it was dark. They barely got their tent up in the rain. They discovered that night that that tent which was supposed to be waterproof, was not quite as waterproof as they realized. On day three, they woke to the groans of the older son who had become very ill. They tried to diagnose what it was, but all that was discovered was like a bite mark on the older son's leg. They thought it might have come from a spider. So unsure of what to do, the group, they waited to depart. There were no cell phones, okay? This is 1982, there were no cell phones. There were really not many people around. So day four came, and the older son felt well enough to continue on, and after several miles, it was discovered that they had left a food bag behind. So three very tired males turned around to head back. They were a little more agitated with each other, some losing heart at times, some questioning why they got off the couch to take this trip. But they pressed on. They had time. They had to make up. Now, the three would eventually go on to finish that trip, but there were going to be more detours along the way. There was parts of the trip that looked more like, like rock climbing than hiking. There were broken flashlights. There were broken shoelaces. Things just did not seem to go 
the way they were supposed to go. But they finished, and they had big adventures to tell of their stories. In fact, here are two of them. This is my brother and my dad, who has since passed, and I'm the one behind the camera. You know what lingers for me most? I'm going to switch mics here. because this... What lingers most for me on that trip was just how fantastic and life-changing that trip was. But I will tell you this, if you were to ask any of us during the trip, if it was a great trip, you would not have heard that at all from us. You know, often when we, we look at the path that's ahead in our life, whether it's on the journey of marriage, on the journey of, of parenting, whether we're getting our degree in school or something work-related, or even something that God has called us specifically to a task, we often set out with a picture in our mind of how that's going to go, right? We create this narrative of what's going to happen. And we usually assume that our journey is going to be a straight line, right? It's going to be easy. You start, you go through, and you finish. But the reality is that most paths look like this. They're winding paths. They have challenges and obstacles. They're paths that, that get worse sometimes before they get better. And there are points along the way of the journey where we reach these desperation-type points on the bends, okay, where we, we start to question what's happening, why God is doing this. We start to question the very nature of who God is too. We even question who we are and our own makeup and our abilities. Welcome to our broken world. Today, in Exodus 5, we're going to talk about getting to one of these desperation-type points, because that's what's going to happen in the story today, all right? But before we do, let's just do a little bit of background, if this is your first time here, okay? God's people have been enslaved in Egypt, forced to work and oppressed by Pharaoh, the king, and in God's people, in desperation, they cry out to him. And it says that God hears them, God remembers the covenant he's made with them, and he chooses a man, Moses, to be the instrument to deliver them from this situation. And in chapter 3, God says to Moses, Moses, there's something I want you to pass on to the people. I'm going to tell you exactly how this is going to go. And he lays out the path ahead. This is what's going to happen. Tell the people, this is it. One, I've seen them. I know what's happened to them in Egypt. Two, I'm going to bring them up out of it. Three, I'm going to bring them to another land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Four, you're going to go to the king, Moses, and you're going to ask him to leave all the people with all the people for three days. Five, he will not let you go without force from me. Six, I'm going to strike Egypt with wonders. Seven, Pharaoh is going to let you go. So God lays out everything to Moses, exactly how this is going to happen, okay? Now, Moses has got some questions because God has just revealed himself to Moses. Moses doesn't really know the Lord that well. And so Moses asked the obvious question, what am I supposed to tell the people? Who are you? Tell me. And in chapter 3, verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people. Tell the people I am sent you. Say this to the people, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. This is really important and something that God's going to come back to later. You see, God, though active, had been silent 
with the people for a while. They did not know who he was. So he makes it known at the beginning by saying this, I am God, I am. I'm the one who was, the one who is, the one who will always be forever. I am God. So it's going to be important as we read and start this in Exodus chapter 5, okay? And in Exodus chapter 5, we're really going to be starting in, in number 4 here on the promise. You will go to the king of Egypt and ask him to leave for three days. So if you want to follow along with me, Exodus 5, going to start right at the beginning. This is what it says, Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And his response makes a lot of sense because Pharaoh saw himself as God and how insulting it is that you would bring another God in to tell me what to do. Not only that, Pharaoh has a lot to lose by letting them go. We're talking about a lot of people who are working for him. To let them go means lost productivity. And really, we know that, that the oppression of God's people was really birthed in the fact that the number of God's people had grown so big that, that the Egyptians were afraid that they were going to take over, so they oppressed them. Verse 3 goes on. Then they, Moses and Aaron, said to Pharaoh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. In other words, Pharaoh, the God you don't know He's our God. He's the Hebrew God. And if you don't let us go, it's going to get bad. He could, he could punish us. And I think there's kind of an implication here, right? A little bit of manipulative here. Like if, you, if, if he ends up doing something to us, we're not going to be able to work for you, Pharaoh. You're going to lose all this work. But the king of Egypt doesn't buy it. And he says to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens, And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. You see, Pharaoh, this is becoming annoying to him that they would even ask. It's insulting to him that another God would somehow presume to take over in his life. But it gets personal for him here, and it says in verse 6 that the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. And there's kind of a chain of command here. There's, there's Pharaoh, then there's his Egyptian taskmasters, then there's the Hebrew foreman, and then they give the work to the people of Israel. But this is what the Pharaoh commands, both the taskmasters and the foreman. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. So he's going to make their job harder. He's going to make them add an extra step to their job, and it's a huge step. Now, God's people, well, let's keep going. But the number of bricks, uh, verse 8, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. You see, Pharaoh just is, thinks that they're lazy, that they want to go out into the wilderness and just play. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now, God's people, their, their chief way of working for Pharaoh was brick making. You can kind of see a picture of it here. 
And here's how it might have looked. God's people had to dig the mud, the clay to temper it, mix it with straw, and mold it to form bricks. The straw was supplied to them by the Egyptians. It was already just extremely difficult work. Some people think that this this request to go gather the straw actually doubled the amount of work that the Israelites had to do. So in verse 10, the uh, taskmasters and the foreman do what Pharaoh says. They tell the people, and, and they, so the people now go and get the straw. And verse 12 said, so the people were scattered throughout the land to gather stubble for straw. They couldn't even really get straw. There wasn't, they couldn't find it. They didn't have enough time to get back to meet, even meet the quota for the day. They had stubble goes on in verse 13. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today as in the past? Why have you not kept up? They're kind of taunting them. And I wonder how Moses felt at this point, seeing an Egyptian beat a Hebrew. It happened before. And things are moving towards this desperation point. And what happens is the, the, the foreman of Israel, what do you do in a union, right? You go right to the top. <laughs> they go right to Pharaoh directly, all right? And they say to Pharaoh in verse 15, why? Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people, Pharaoh. They stopped bringing us the straw. And Pharaoh says, oh, no, 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 you are idle. You are idle. That's why you say this. That's why you say, let us go out and sacrifice the Lord. Go, now work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same amount of bricks. Verse 19, the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. You ever been in a situation and it dawns on you, you're in the situation and you realize this is not changing. This is going to keep going. Maybe somebody you were working with left and you got the work piled on you and you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. Then you reach that point where they're not going to hire somebody. This is going to continue. This is going to go on. My situation's not changing. This is what the foremen of the people of Israel were at. And they find Moses and Aaron. They're waiting for them. And you can feel their anger as they say this to them. You've brought this into our life. Verse 20, 21 there. They said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And he've put a sword in their hand to kill us. You've made us stink. Any kind of, of work we've got done to gain any kind of reputation here, you have just thrown it out by asking this request of Pharaoh. Okay, let's step back. Because not long ago, right, God made those promises. We went through them, seven of them. This is what's going to happen. And there was this feeling of deliverance is coming, excitement, hope is in the air, everything's going to change. And where do we find ourselves at now? Things have gotten worse before they get better. 
So let's stop and see where we are in the promises. We're somewhere right between number four and number five there. Pharaoh, number five, Pharaoh will not let you go without force from me. And you step back and you say, when the promise was initially made to Moses, all right, how did Moses think this was going to play out? What did the leaders of Israel think as Moses told them? How did they think this would look, how this would happen? I mean, God had clearly stated the promise. God knew where this was going. It was going to get harder. And you say, man, don't you just want to do some PR for God sometimes, right? You say, oh, if you want to sell God, here's what you do. You talk about the, the promise, and then you skip the middle part, right? You just go right to the deliverance. I'm telling you, people will follow you if you do that because no one wants to hear that it got worse, No one wants to hear about the painful parts. But most of the Bible is in the in-between. It's in the painful parts. You look at people like Jonah, people like Joseph. I mean, Joseph was given a great promise and a great deliverance in the end, but he ended up sold into slavery by his brothers. He ended up in jail. He was in the worst of situations, and yet God delivered. And I give credit to God because God is so very honest in this book. He does not leave the in-betweens out. And he does it for a reason, to give us hope to keep going on to where this is all going. It's often going to get worse before it gets better. So just hear this today, obeying God's call. We need to come back this often. Obeying his call and his promises does not make life easier. Suffering is inevitable. The bends that we have in the road are inevitable. But they do not change the fact that God is moving towards his promises. And you say, welcome to the world we live in. This world we live in is ruined by sin. I mean, look at the events of our last week. You know, open your mailbox and look at the political ads that are out now. It's all negative. It's all cutting down other people. You know, we're going to have pharaohs in our life that come up against us regularly, just sometimes because we know the Father And if it's not people, it's going to be a variety of other things. I mean, health challenges. You think of the the concept of aging itself, right? It's a series of turns. It's going to get worse, right? Death before it gets better. But don't take your eyes off the end. It's coming. So I ask you this morning, is there for you a bend right now that you're in in your path? Is there a desperate place you find yourself in today that you did not picture was going to happen this way? Have you lost heart where you're at? What's your pain? You know, none of us are going to escape the physical, emotional, psychological, relational kinds of suffering in this life. Maybe you've had a relationship with a close friend that has gone south and you are reeling from it. Maybe you're in a time in your marriage right now where it is dry and you're scared about where it's going to go. Maybe you've lost someone or something. 
Maybe you've taken a fall backwards financially. We're all going to know the sorrow that comes from living as a part of this world. And as if that weren't bad enough, hope's coming. If that weren't that bad enough, get ready for it because it's time to de-Americanize our faith. Okay, your bend in the road may or may not come out the way you want it to. It may not even happen in your lifetime. Let that sink in. What does that do? You know, for the people of Israel who were made these promises, this whole generation never got to see the third one. It came for the generation after. So the question is, are you ready, are we ready to follow a God whose story is bigger than our own story that is a part of something much grander and much greater than us? You know, I'll never understand some of the bends in my life, and maybe you can even think back now in your life of the different bends in your road, the different desperate times. Some of you know our story. I say it again because it applies here. We, we had two, two boys, okay? After that, we had three attempts to try again, and we, lost, we had miscarriages at, at about four months, each of those, and had doctors tell us, you know, it's just not going to work out. And I'm telling you, that was a desperation time for us. Why, God? Why? Who are you? How dare you treat us like this? We'd finally gotten to the point where, okay, we relented. This is about God. This is, he's, he knows this. We've got to trust him with it. Then we get this opportunity out of the blue, all right, where this adoption comes, a chance to adopt comes to us. And we are like, we st- I started creating this narrative, right? Have you done this before? This is it. This is the deliverance. I read about these stories in the Bible. It's coming. Oh, my gosh. I'm, we're so excited about it. God is going to redeem everything that happened in the past. Except it didn't happen. Fell through right at the last minute, and it was just devastating to us. And we found ourselves in a similar place as Moses here in Verse 22, when he cries out to God, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And so we ask these questions, don't we, in the pain? Why? Why do these things happen? God, do you keep your promises? Are you cruel somehow? What about me? What about my deliverance? What about my story? God, do you care? And this is all while God is moving forward in his promises, carrying them on to completion. You know, it's interesting here. God does not, uh, (laughs) he doesn't like, uh, strike Moses with a lightning bolt, which is, I mean, think about it. Moses says to him, you are evil. Moses says to him, you don't deliver. You're a liar. God doesn't strike him down here. In fact, I think in this initial phase of knowing God, there's kind of in this extra amount of grace that is given to Moses and to the people here because they didn't really know him. 
They didn't really know who God was. They had a concept of him that had been passed down, but they didn't know him. Remember, again, Moses was given a promise. He was not told the specific details. He did know that Pharaoh would not be an easy win. So for us, we ask this question, do we have a picture in our mind when it comes to God's promises? Do we have a narrative that we've created when God says to you, I will never leave you, okay? I will never leave you. That's a promise of his. How do we think that should look? How do we think that should play out? What would cause you to stop believing that? And Jesus says to his followers and to us in John 16, and he says this, says this after he's told them, I'm about to leave you. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to give his life to make us right with God. He's about to be, to be raised from the dead, to have power over sin and death. And he says to his followers this, I've said these things to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation but take heart. I've overcome. I've overcome the world. So Jesus himself makes some promises. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have tribulation. Tribulation means great trouble, suffering. But he says, I've overcome the world. There's a future ahead. There's hope because of what I've done. So what's your narrative? What's your assumptions on how that should look? Tribulation, he's promised it. He's promised we're going to go to desperate places in our life. And I think we like to think of the road more as like a straight path, right? Tribulation has a start and a finish. We don't think about the bends so that when the bends come, when we find ourselves in these desperate places, what do we do? We grab it back. We start to not trust, right? I'm not sure that you've overcome. I'm really not sure that you'll never leave me. In fact, I think you have. I think you're gone. I don't think you care. And God does not promise timelines. He doesn't promise details. He says it'll be hard, but even in the pain, my promises are moving forward for good. And what's the desire of Christ in John 16? This is important. In me, in me, you have peace. So that when you get to that bend in the road, oh, you're going to grieve over it. Oh, it's going to be hard. But you can, you can endure. You can persevere through it because you know where this is going. You know the hope that is around the corner. And God communicates a similar message to Moses in chapter 6. And it's centered around this question here. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Do you know who he is? Do you know the one who's in control of your life? Do you know what he's like? Because it makes a big difference in handling the bends that come. So in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord responds to Moses, and he says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God begins to go back and recount again the promises that he has made. He addresses three of them there in in this verse. But then he brings back Moses to why he should move forward in trust 
in verse 2 when he says to Moses, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that's a little bit confusing, right? That verse 3, what does that mean? Uh, there's, I'll tell you, there's a lot of speculation. We're really not even completely sure what that means. There seems to be a more distinct way that God was making himself known now than he did to his forefathers as God Almighty, perhaps revealing more of his nature, of who he was as Jehovah, the one true God. We're not sure. What we do know is that God brings Moses back to who he is. I am the Lord. Church, this is where we get the strength to move forward and persevere through the bends that are going to come in our life, even in the one you're in now. Verse 4, God goes on to say to Moses, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He's going back to the promises here. Number one, I've remembered my covenant. And the God who was, and the God who is, and the God who remembers church, that, that is where we get the strength to continue on the journey through the winding parts of the path. God says in verse 6, Say therefore to the people, Moses, in case you didn't hear it before, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I am the Lord. He goes on again and says, here's a couple more promises he states again here. I'm the God who will deliver. Church, this is where we get the strength to wait at the bend, to endure through it. And then in verse 7, God gets very intimate and talks about the future relationship he's going to have. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. You see, our relationship is going to change. We're going to get to know each other, and you're going to know me as God. You're going to know that I am the Lord. Do we know him? God goes on to promise in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. Again, I am the Lord. He recounts the promises. And then God says to Moses, Moses, go tell the people what I told you. Tell them. And this is what happens in verse 9. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. You see yourself in this at all? Do you see those times? Maybe it's now 
where you are so devastated in such a desperate place that you don't even want to listen to God? Do you know him? Is your spirit broken by where you are? Who is the Lord? That's a huge question for us. Do we know the Lord? How do we know him? Are we like Pharaoh who just didn't want anything to do with him? I'm God. Are we like the people of Israel, right, who, who had some recollection maybe from Sunday school that they had heard about the wonders of who God was, but they didn't know God? How about Moses who started to experience God? It was uncomfortable to him, but he began that adventure. Or are we so intimate? Do we abide with God in such a way that we know who he is? We draw strength from who he is. Do we know him? Do we know what he's like? Do we know that he speaks and things come into existence? That do, we, do we know that he knows all things? Do we know that, that he's present in all places, that he can heal in a moment, that all of creation obeys his voice, that he's a faithful God, that he loves his children and he works things out for their good? So a couple of thoughts or points today for those of you who like points, right? So let me give you one. Number one, the Lord God Almighty knows the path. His promises can be trusted. In the bend, when we reach that, those desperate times, we've got to remember who God is, what he's done, and where, he, where he's going with it, what he promises to do moving forward. And here's just a few promises that God makes to us, right? One I'd mentioned before, he'll never leave us. He'll never leave us. Even in your most desperate times, when you think he's abandoned, you will never leave. Two, in John 3, he talks about we trust in him. We've got, we have life that goes beyond this life. He's promised it. He's, gone, he's going to prepare a place for us. You can bank on it, count on it. It's going to happen. Number three, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are tired of chasing other things and running, come to me and you'll find rest in me. Those are promises that God has made to us. The Lord God Almighty knows the path and his promises can be trusted. Number two, there will be turns in the path that bring us to desperation. They're just, it's just going to happen. It's a part of the world that we live in. So what do we do in that? Number three, Lord God Almighty knows the path. His promises can be trusted, and he takes us through that bend. Then we get to number four. What happens? There will be turns in the path that will bring us to desperation. Do you see a cycle here, perhaps? I won't keep it going. Number five, the Lord God Almighty calls us to persevere in the path in the bend. In fact, we are changed. James 1 says perseverance must finish its work so that we can be mature, can be complete the way God wanted us. God intends to transform us through those times, through those, those times in the bends. So Paul said, we don't lose heart 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. See, there's a daily renewal that comes from answering that question, who is the Lord? There's a daily renewal that comes from saying, in him we find our peace. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, and Paul says in Romans 8, 2, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and you got to know Paul went through some incredibly difficult times of suffering. And what does he say? That the, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So on this road that we're on, we've got to step back at times, and we've got to look ahead to see where things are going to gain strength. We've got to know who the Lord is. And there's a great picture of this in, in a movie, okay? The movie The Hobbit, okay? And they are in the, the, the forest. They are, are stuck in this loop of not being able to get out of the forest. And one of them climbs to the top of the tree line. I want you to look at this. So most, most of you know, if you've seen that movie, you know what happens right after that, right? They end up getting, like, in this another bend in the road here with, if you don't like spiders, do not watch that part of the movie. But we've got to come back. We've got to come back to, to walk, right, to the top of the tree line. We've got to see where this is all going, where this is heading, so we do not lose heart. That's a daily thing that God wants us to do. So some questions for us to process in our groups this week. And these questions are, are um, really about who God is and who we are. Number one, can I take my dreams and my picture of where I think things should go and let it die to God's promises? Number two, who is the Lord to me? Do I know him? And number three, what does it look like to persevere in the bend that I'm in right now? We're going to take communion here in just a second. And I want you to think about uh, Jesus. I want you to think specifically about the time when he was on the cross dying for us to make us right with God, paying for our sins. And he's on the cross, and he cries out. And many of us know what he said on the cross. What did he say? My God, why have you forsaken me? He said the same thing, right, that Moses said, the same thing that we say right in the path when the hard, difficult things come in our life. He said that. But he did not give up. He persevered. Because he knew the promises of God. He knew where this was all going. And he continued on to lay down his life to do the greatest act of love we've ever known so that we can walk and know our God intimately. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted yourself in the bend. Consider what he did for you, 
how he endured, how he persevered through it to see the promises of God come true. We're going to take communion. I'm going to invite you in a moment just to get up and to, there's several tables here you can get the elements at. When you're ready, you can get up and get them after I dismiss here in a second. Um, Jesus, uh, when he was with his disciples before he gave his life for us, he was with them and he was having a meal with them. And he took some bread and he said, hey, this, I want you to do this. I want you to, when you get together, I want you to take this bread and I want you to break it. This, this represents, this symbolizes my body that was broken for you. When you get together, I want you to do this to remember me. And he took a cup, too, of juice. And he said, listen, this is, represents my blood that was shed for you. I want you to do this together when you get together. And I want you to remember me and what I did. Every time you do that, Jesus said, you are proclaiming my death. You're proclaiming what I did for you until I come again. So do it. And Jesus uh, intended this for, for this to be for his followers. So we want to ask you, to, if you know him as Lord, we invite you to, to, to take part in it. If not, you can just sit there. You don't have to be a part of this this time. And parents, you can kind of use your discretion with your kids as to uh, whether they should do this or not. So let's take some more. As you go to the tables, go ahead and grab the elements, take them back to your seat. And we'll take them together after a couple minutes, but just take some time to reflect on what Jesus went through, how he persevered through for, for us so that, to make us right with God. So whenever you're ready. Church, I think it's really significant that God wanted us to do this together, right? He didn't ask them to go off on their own. And to take the bread and the juice, he, it was a community. It was together. And it says in the scripture that before, before he went through this, they gave thanks. So I'd like to, to pray and give thanks to God. God, we give you thanks for this bread, which represents your body, which was broken for us, we think of the way that you suffered, the way you persevered so that we could know you, so that we could be made right with you. And we know that it came at a great cost to you. It's unimaginable what you went through for us. We thank you for your body was broken for us. Let's take the bread together. And God, we give you thanks, too, for what this cup represents because it represents the blood that was shed for us, the new covenant now between you and man, that through Christ, that in Christ, we could know you. We thank you that that came to us as a gift, that we don't have to earn it. There's nothing we could do to earn it. It was freely given by you. We thank you, and we know that it came at great cost to you on the cross. So we remember your blood that was shed for us. Let's drink.
And God, as we sing today to remember, we focus on the way that you suffered for us, but also the hope that we are proclaiming your death until you come again and you are coming again. Help us to set our sights on the road ahead, to get the top of the tree line, to look and to know where this is all going. It's going to be soon. It's going to be soon. Let's stand and sing together.